Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast. That's where we're taking a look ahead to some of the events that are going to be shaping investment decisions and certainly moving markets in the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. That means this week, asking our man watching the painful progress of Brexit talks from a front row seat at the EU, that's ahead of the forthcoming Leaders' Summit, and we'll be getting a Wall Street view on the earnings season that's about to start. This week, I'm Bobby Nomates in London, but I'm pleased to say joined on the line from New York by James Dean, the Times US business editor, and from Brussels by the Times correspondent there, Bruno Waterfield. Welcome to you both and thanks for being here. Bruno, if I can start with you. As we said, there is an EU Leaders' Summit coming up there in Brussels. But before we talk about that, here's a clip of the press conference that followed the latest round of talks that have just concluded between David Davis in our corner and Michel Barnier for the EU. In her Florence speech, Theresa May explained uh, that uh, the UK would uh, honour the commitments entered into as a member of the Union. And that is an important commitment. This week, however, the UK repeated that uh, it was still not uh, ready to spell out these commitments. There have therefore been no negotiations on this subject. We confined ourselves to technical discussions. Useful discussions, but technical discussions. So on this question, we've reached a state of deadlock, which is very disturbing, for uh, thousands of project promoters in Europe, and it's disturbing also for taxpayers. That was Michel Barnier there, the chief EU Brexit negotiator, talking a while ago on the BBC. Uh, Bruno, just set the scene for us, if you would, on these talks and how it's going to impact on the forthcoming summit. Well, the talks this week have, 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 have finished without um, any identical progress in, in any areas, um, uh, more or less what we expected and that really does mean that next week at the summit um, we need a breakthrough uh, mr barnier has privately behind closed doors petitioned for his mandate his negotiating mandate which is this very detailed very very restrictive very very rigid 10-page document that was agreed in the spring he wants that relaxed a little bit relaxed to allow him to enter into what is called a scoping exercise which is uh, a term that actually has a le legal meaning in terms of exploring a transition deal so that Britain doesn't fall off um, the edge of a cliff 
um, in March 2019, a transition deal that Theresa May asked for in her Florence speech when she made a number of major concessions. And Mr Barney has told other EU governments that those concessions were enough, in his view, um, to start talking about transition before meeting this really high bar of sufficient progress, um, which will be in December to formally uh, move on to sort of full-blooded uh, trade talks um, after settling the withdrawal issue. So really, all eyes are on um, that summit uh, next week. Will EU leaders, will the EU 27 EU leaders give Mr Barnier the clearance to start talking uh, transition? And if they don't, isn't that a pretty telling humiliation for Theresa May, who made that speech in Florence, giving big concessions on direct effect for residency rights and for European nationals, basically conceding that Britain is going to pay tens of billions uh, in terms of its commitments to the EU budget. What a humiliation if after making all of those concessions, uh, she gets nothing for deadlock remains. So next week is going to be a crunch moment, a real crunch moment um, in, in, in the talks. What's the feeling about the business mandate over there? Because I was, as you were talking there, I'm thinking of so many places that we all know, whether it's the local coffee shops or whether it's the big investment banks that we talk to. Thousands, tens of thousands of Europeans are based over here. Their future must be looking a bit sort of uncertain. And extrapolating from that, the, the future of businesses in London must look a, a little bit in question, mustn't they? Well, yes. I mean, this is the, the, the whole question. This is the whole question of a transition, whether it's two uh, or three years, a standstill tr transition. So the, the basically the rules that the EU currently has continue to apply for a period uh, um, after Brexit, giving business certainty. Um, and business needs to know early next year so that it can plan for what happens in March 2019 in terms of issuing uh, contracts or, or selling holidays. So business wants an answer um, on this uh, transition. And Mr. Barnier and David Davis need to do the work over the next couple of months. So by the end of year, the year, after this so-called scoping um, exercise, a transition agreement is more or less ready to be put down in writing at the beginning of next year, well before March next year. And that will give businesses enough time to plan. That will give enough businesses the security and certainty of knowing that come the end of March 2000. Uh, 19. There's not going to be a cliff edge. There's not going to be a whole new uh, regime, a whole new uh, relationship. It will basically be a standstill. It will basically be the same rules without Britain having any say over them. James, if I could bring you in from New York, does this actually impact on Wall Street at the moment? Because obviously the, the Americans themselves are having trade talks on the side with the European Union as such. So is this a big issue for you over there or the people you talk to, or has it not yet quite impinged or come to the top of the list? No, it is, it is a big issue in as much as, I mean, there's not much um, that, you know, politicians or, you know, trade negotiators over here can do until all of these kind of, you know, procedural issues and and, and everything that Bruno just mentioned is all, is all ironed out. I mean, what it always comes down to is the fact that when it comes to, say, UK-US trade relations, and in, that obviously brings in what's going to happen with American companies in London, uh, you know, especially the big banks that employ so many people in the city, it always, always comes down to the fact that the UK needs to get its relationship with the EU sorted out. 
before there can be any kind of UK-US trade talks. And the new US trade representative over here, um, Robert Lighthizer, he said that repeatedly. Whenever he's asked about, you know, what, what's happening with the UK-US trade deal, it's like we've got to wait to see what happens in Europe first. So, you know, unofficial channels are open. Um, Liam Fox has travelled over to Washington to start kind of informal talks about the UK-US trade deal. But even those informal on-the-side negotiations will be pretty much useless until the point where the UK and the EU have actually just even got the procedural steps in place in order to talk transition and all of these sorts of things. So it's still very much a wait-and-see thing over here. But there are elements of frustration with the fact that this recent round of talks have led to deadlock. In the past, you know, things tend to move on very slowly. And we're getting, you know, closer and closer towards Article 50 deadline and next to nothing seems to have happened. So it's more frustration over here and more of a kind of wait and see. Bruno, thinking back, flipping back to you in Brussels, I mean, in terms of the American-EU trade talks, is there likely to be a deal soon? Uh, no, the, the American um, EU trade talks are, are, are um, a bit like the parrot in the Monty Python uh, sketch. They're dead. Deceased? Deceased. And do you think, I mean, talking about James's point, that in terms of how the EU are viewing their future relationship with America, does Britain feature in that? Or is it as President Obama once memorably said that when we leave the EU, we move to the back of the queue? So does the, the EU, it's really the EU and America minus the UK, isn't it, in the future? Well, I think I think I think there's, there's there's a couple of really important things to bear in in to bear in mind. The first is in her Article 50 letter, the letter she sent to the EU to basically say we're leaving and beginning these Byzantine and deadlocked talks in March. In that letter, she said something very important, which was a really big signal, particularly for the French, that Europe is Britain's preferred trading partner. That's important languages because it implies, well, it more than implies, it says that Britain wants access to the single market. Then you've got to think of the backdrop of Bombardier in Northern Ireland and effectively trade defence measures that America has taken against Britain, um, which are a major barrier to um, Britain having trade talks with the United States. And actually, um, it will be a major barrier to Europe having uh, trade talks with the United States. That's a dispute that's a European dispute, uh, not just a British-American uh, dispute. So the idea of, of, of American-British trade talks um, at the moment uh, don't look particularly good. The Bombardier thing has, I think, changed the focus of the mind of UK-US uh, trade negotiators because it's shown the true colours of this administration. I mean, it's, it, was, it was hard to accept what Donald Trump was saying at the start of the year about doing, I can't remember, described as a really beautiful trade deal with the UK that would happen very, very quickly, while at the same time going on Fox News and talking about how he was going to bring jobs back to America by enacting all of these nationalist um, trade policies. And we've seen the true colours of that when we've had the decision over Bombardier, these huge tariffs on all of these jets that were... Uh, destined to come in from Canada. I mean, obviously, that wasn't directly a, a UK-US trade deal because of Bombardier Canadian, but it impacts, as Bruno said, um, a lot of people in Europe and especially thousands of workers in Northern Ireland. So the kind of optimism that there was at the start of the year that, you know, uh, post-Brexit Britain would be able to secure a quick deal with the US now seen as more, um, in more kind of realistic vision as something that's going to be a difficult negotiation with a nationalistic um, administration in, in, in Donald Trump's administration. So, um, yes, I mean, I think 
I think the bombarding is, is quite uh, is quite important in that regard. What do you say to that, Bruno? I, I completely agree. I, I don't think it augurs well for British-American trade talks. And I think uh, if you look at the whole debate with particularly uh, Philip Hammond and the Chancellor, the real burning issue for business um, and for government is how to avoid a cliff edge or no deal uh, in March 2019 rather than actually uh, talking to the Americans. And, and, and frankly, you know, in terms of public opinion, um, Trump, I don't think has ever been held in particularly high regard by the great British Joe public. Um, and I think after the Bombardier affair, or as it, uh, as it unfolds, um, that is ever more the case. Would you agree, though, that this is a step too far for, for most people in the international trade community over there, James? I mean, we've got uh, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, was at the White House recently. He's made it clear he won't do a deal with uh, with with Boeing, will he? He's already put it on ice until this is resolved. So it's it looks like it's all unraveling in a way. Um, it's I mean it's 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 probably something that it's something that the, the U.S. Uh, the Trump administration wanted to happen. It wants to be forceful on uh, what it sees as unfair trade practices. Although you know the definition of that has changed somewhat since Trump got into office, because unfair trade practices means. Uh, anything that he thinks will not benefit American workers or, or basically gives any kind of advantage to any any foreign company, a foreign country or foreign company, even if it also benefits the US. So, yeah, yeah, the goalpost has shifted with the whole Bombardier thing. But I, I think it's just an, an actual representation of where this administration was always going to go to. He pulled out of the um, uh, uh, the he pulled out of various trade deals. You know, he's renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement. This is what yeah, the, uh, the meetings with Justin Trudeau have been about this week. But, um, you know, most people who are looking at these negotiations right now over NAFTA are saying this, is gonna, this isn't going to go anywhere. The U.S. is going to pull out. Because you know, the other countries don't want to accede to the demands of the U.S., which would completely re- reframe the agreement to its benefit to the detriment of the other countries. So uh, there's no reason why they'd want to sign up to that. OK, well, let's move on there. There's lots to think about for that. But uh, James, if I could uh, stay with you just for a moment. We've got the third quarter earnings seasons kicking off in earnest soon. We've already heard from the big banks. Are investors going to be happy with the results? Because of the hurricanes, there's certainly going to be uh, the expectations have been lowered for earnings for, for the third quarter. I mean, of the banks who have reported so far, we've had pretty strong results, a bit stronger than expected. Profits are fairly decent, um, mainly from, you know, rising interest rates and commercial and business banking. Trading isn't so great. They're complaining about a lack of volatility in the markets, which doesn't help traders. Um, You've also got reduced demand for bond trading. There was a lot of that a year ago in the wake of Brexit and also before the U.S. elections. So I think overall, yes, it's still positive. Very much looking for kind of a low single digit profit increases across the kind of broader market, say like S&P 500 companies. But looking further ahead, the prospects are a lot brighter. I mean, analysts are seeing double-digit profit growth in the fourth quarter and in the first two quarters of 2018. So, I mean, the U.S. economy seems to be roaring, driven by uh, very strong earnings. You know, basically corporate America is driving it forward, I think, rather than White House policy, of which there has been little to no progress on so far. So, yes, it's looking to be a decent earnings season hit by the hurricanes at the moment. But looking to the future, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a bit a lot stronger to the end of the year and uh, into the middle of next year. Uh, Bruno, broadly speaking, we're getting the message and, and reading the copy that you and David Charter from Berlin send us that the Eurozone is actually looking in reasonable shape at the moment and probably better than Britain. 
Britain. I mean, is that is that your view looking forward to the final quarter of the year and into the next? The, the Eurozone metrics are, are very, very good. Um, they are probably rather dependent on the uh, massive bond purchases um, by the European uh, Central Bank at the moment. Um, so they could be vulnerable to Brexit uh, tailwinds. Um, and there are still uh, sort of lingering concerns about the health of, health of European banks in terms of any shocks. Um, and there are also uh, concerns very similar, actually, to some of the debates uh, in Britain um, over the years about the quality of the jobs and growth that, that people are learning less, um, their jobs are more uh, insecure, and they're probably underemployed uh, compared to the past. So, yes, the Eurozone is looking uh, much better than it was. You know, employment is up and all jobs are better than uh, not having a job um, at all. But I think there's still quite a lot of searching debate about where the Eurozone is going. And into next year, there will be a searching debate and concerns uh, about the ECB withdrawing uh, some of this, uh, some of these cash injections um, by tapering off um, its bond purchases. Thank you both very much. That's about it for now. Remember that Philip Aldrich, our economics editor, is at the International Monetary Fund and World Bank annual meetings in Washington, so he'll be keeping us up to date on all platforms. And there are also financial updates scheduled from, as we said, Unilever, ASOS, Bellway and Stobart Group. There's all that and, of course, the other news and analysis online, on your phones and your tablets and in the paper. If you aren't a subscriber and would like to become one, just sign up at thetimes.co.uk and you could also then receive our daily morning and lunchtime business bulletins. If you want to hear us weekly, do subscribe through iTunes. My special thanks to Bruno Waterfield in Brussels and James Dean in New York. They are on Twitter, they're regular users, so please do follow them. And of course, our economics editor, Philip Aldrich, over there in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening and please join us again next week. 